Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we take a trip to Enid Blyton country, Brownsea Island. We find out about the clean-up volunteering days in the Lake District and... I'm, I am part of a select club of uh, very few people. I'm not sure how many people there are now. When I did it, I was one of only 12. It was the same number of people that have stood on the moon. Alan Hinks talks about being the first Briton to climb the world's highest mountains. Hello, I'm Andrew White, and welcome to the Walks Around Britain podcast. In this edition, we're going to visit the Lake District via the world's highest mountains. But we start with a trip to Brownsea Island. The island is a 500-acre haven of woodland, heathland and salt marsh nestled in Pool Harbour and is owned by the National Trust. Writer and blogger Karen Guttridge is off for a walk to see red squirrels on the island, but her journey starts before the ferry. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to today's walk. I'm off to Brownsey Island in Pool Harbour, but first I'm going to visit a shop here on Pool Quay that conjures up very fond childhood memories for me. I'm standing outside Ginger Pop, which promises me lashings of ginger beer and is, of course, dedicated to Enid Blyton and her amazing books. I remember as a child going to stay with my nan, She opened her linen chest to search for an extra blanket and there, on the top of the pile, was a famous five book. They were my absolute favourite possessions at the time. I was thrilled to bits and can vividly remember the feeling today. I really think I've got to go inside this shop. So I've come inside now and I'm standing here next to Fiona who works in Ginger Pop. Good afternoon, Fiona. Good afternoon, Karen. Can you tell us a little bit more about Enid Blyton's link with Brownsea Island? Um, Well, it's quite important for Famous Five fans because um, in uh, about 1962 she wrote a book called Five Have a Mystery to Solve and in the front she has a letter which actually says the places in the book are real and there's a hint in the text that it's Pool Harbour so we think Whispering Island in that book is Brownsea Island. Ah, and did Enid Blyton actually visit Brownsea Island, do you know? Well, in those days, it was, uh, it was privately owned and, um, and jealously guarded, as it were, um, just like the one in the story. Um, but in, uh, at the time she was writing the book, there was a lot of discussion about it being um, sold. Um, so that would have uh, sort of heightened interest and perhaps made her think about it more. I see, because I know that this year it's the 70th anniversary of those famous five books, with the first one being Five on a Treasure Island. So I have to ask you, Fiona, what would your favourite Enid Blyton book be? 
Well, it wouldn't actually be a Famous Five book, I'm afraid. Um, it would be The Castle of Adventure. Um, remember that one? Yes. Oh, it was fantastic. I can even remember where I was when I read it. It's one of those. Um, yes. Um, and that one, again, we don't think it has a Dorset connection, but I suspect traces of Corfe Castle in that one. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm going to often have a good old browse around the shop now. It takes me way back. The memories are flooding through. Of course, as Brownsey is an island, a trip on this ferry is needed to get there. Now I'm on the island, I can't wait to go on one of the squirrel walks to see if I can spot any. Having learnt today that one of the best ways to spot red squirrels is simply to find yourself a nice quiet spot and sit tight, I've come to the area that they like, which is near the Scots pines and the beech trees, and I'm sitting on a log, and I have just been rewarded with three squirrels playing happily in front of me. A lovely sight. I've just returned from one of Brownsey Island's fantastic red squirrel walks, and I was lucky enough to see seven of them, even though they are really, really quick and you have to be on your toes to spot them. With me now is Brownsey Island ranger Wayne. I'm just hoping that Wayne is going to share with us some of his top tips for visiting Brownsey and why this is a fantastic destination to visit. Well, as we've just come back uh, from seeing the uh, red squirrels, red squirrels are a major point to Brownsey Islands. They only now are the second place in southern England you can find them. We have the second largest colony of red squirrel. Uh, Brownsey Island is about 500 acres and it can support around about 250 red squirrels. I'm here now with Gordon, who is one of the guided walk leaders here on the island. I saw you go off this morning, Gordon, with quite a large group of people. So obviously these walks are popular. Well, these walks are popular at this time of the year because this is when we do the squirrel walks. Up to this time, we do guided walks, history walks. But at this time of year, when the squirrels are very active, burying their food in the ground, it's a good time for people to come and see the red squirrels. They can see them other times of the year, but this time is much busier and they're much more active. This morning I had about 35 people with me and we had uh, some good sighting of squirrels and they were very happy with the walk. What other types of walk do you do on the island? The other types of walks I do are um, guided walks which uh, cover history, flora and fauna. Uh, the history of Vancey is very interesting. We can actually go back to the 10th and 11th century and it's quite surprising when you tell people about uh, Henry VIII and other owners of the island, some eccentric, some not, some were financially very well off, some weren't. Um, they're most surprised at the content of the um, people, the people, the families who lived on Brown Island up till 1962 when the National Trust took it over. Excellent. I know it's got quite a varied and interesting history. Do you have a favourite walk, Gordon? I do have a favourite walk, and yes, and that is around the southwest end of the island where we have three viewpoints, and they're really quite splendid. You look across to the Purbex and the other islands there, and on a clear day, such as today, you can actually just make out the top of Corfe Castle in the distance. A lot of people come in, they really appreciate that view. It's an absolutely magnificent view. And the nearest island to Brownsea is what we call Oil Island. And from that island, thousands of gallons of oil a day are pumped at least 35 miles to the other side of Southampton. 
I'm sitting outside the visitor centre at Brownsey Island with Jeff Curtis. Jeff is a Brownsey Island National Trust volunteer here and he's got a particular interest in involving families in the activities on the island. Can you tell us a little bit about your tracker pack challenge, Jeff? The tracker pack challenge I developed because the old tracker packs that we used to do weren't really working. The new tracker packs are five different challenges and the children have an I spy sheet and on each one of the sheets there's different activities. They have to look for mini beasts, they have to look for flying mini beasts, they have to look for birds and of course there's the red squirrel one. So it sounds like there's lots of fun to be had for families on the island then? Yes, that's my, that's my aim. My aim is to try and get children away from using electronic games and leading a virtual life to actually experiencing real life and real wildlife on Brown Sea. Sounds fantastic to me. Thank you very much, Jeff. What Jeff failed to mention during our little chat there was that throughout he was wearing a Tufty the Red Squirrel glove puppet, which he insists is real. One of the things I really love about Brownsey Island is the fact that although it's a mere one and a half miles long by three quarters of a mile wide, there are just so many varied walks to do. In fact, I've been walking almost solidly for four hours today. I've now headed off into the Dorset Wildlife Trust area of the island and I'm with Chris, who is the reserve manager for the Dorset Wildlife Trust. Can you tell me what I can expect to see here? We've got a self-guided nature trail, which is a single loop round a number of varied habitats on the nature reserve and that takes in four bird hides too which overlook the lagoon and it's the lagoon that makes brown sea so really important for wildlife although people actually know the island obviously for its red squirrels the bird populations here are truly phenomenal and in the winter time we've got two species here that are internationally important black-tailed godwits avocet so there are numbers over 700 of each species at times on the lagoon and in the summer nationally important tern colonies and you can get really really close-up views of all these birds from our lagoon hides. Well, it's time for me to leave the island now. And as I reflect on the day, I'm just walking past the area where all the wading birds are in their splendour and just entering into some woodland on my way back towards the ferry. And I think it's part of the fun of the day as well, that coming to Brownsie, you have to get a boat. On the return journey back to Poole, the skipper does give a running commentary of the bay, which is really interesting. So I've got that to look forward to. And you can see photos from Karen's trip to Brownsea on her blog, along with following her travels on Twitter and Facebook. And to find those links, just visit the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog, which you can find by clicking through from our website, walksaroundbritain.co.uk. We're all keen on promoting the great British outdoors and getting more people out to experience it firsthand. The downside to this is the more people who get out, the more rubbish and litter gets left on the hills. Well, the charity Friends of the Lake District organises several fell care days throughout the year, and Tanya Oliver went on the latest one in October to find out more, and to do some digging. Today I'm at the Windermere Fell Care Day, organised by Friends of the Lake District in partnership with a range of other organisations and it's a mass volunteering event to encourage people to try and really look after the landscape that they're part of so you have everything from litter picking to making nesting boxes going on uh, drain runs and a whole range of other different activities. Now we're all meeting at the Ambleside Cricket Club 
and uh, just on my way there and I'm with Tilly, my black Labrador that I'm looking after for a couple of weeks and she's already been for a swim, having gone across the river where there were stepping stones, she decided stepping stones are very overrated and, um, and went for a swim instead until she tried to push me in but we'll gloss over that um, so we're just about to arrive in one piece not wet at this point and uh, ready to enjoy our day the Fixer Fells volunteers and the National Trust Rangers are playing a key part in the Fell Care Day today. And I'm going with a group of them on a drain run on Nab Scar. A drain run is about protecting the upland paths from erosion. And what we do is clear out the drains and clear them of any uh, stone or grass or debris of anything so that the water can flow away from the path and therefore protect it from further erosion. We also sweep the stones off any areas of stone pitching, again, to make it easier to walk on and therefore, you know, helping stop people walking off the path, which, which causes longer-term damage. So I've just stopped to do my first drain. It's actually mainly full of grass. And it just needs digging out. And I've only got a tiny spade, so I'm going to give it my best shot. Tilly's supervising. And hopefully someone else will come along and give me a hand as well. So I'm just watching one of the volunteers and one of the rangers moving some large rocks around. The two small ones I put in have been rejected. Um, and they were very small, I admit. Um, and um, they're putting some large rocks because people have been cutting off the corner of the path and it's a, a kind of a visual deterrent to keep people on the path and, again, help reduce erosion. I certainly couldn't have shifted rocks that big, though, so it's a good job they came along. One of the great things about the Fell Care Days are the people you meet, the people out volunteering, um, some of whom are regular volunteers, some of whom it's their first time. And it's just great uh, enthusiasm, and it's really quite infectious. So it's one of the, my favourite things to do is coming out with the volunteers. But today we're fortunate we have two supervisors in the form of Tilly the Labrador and Hamish the West Highland White. So they're keeping an eye on us as we do our work. I have to say that there are worse offices to be in during the day when you've got the beautiful autumnal colours, Windermere in front of you and rocky crags to the side. It really is a great day to be out in the fells today. Beautiful day. So I'm just talking to Barry, one of our Fixer Fells volunteers, and you can hear his dog Hamish in the background. So what is it about Fixer Fells that makes you volunteer, Barry? Uh, I think the main reason I volunteered was because I wanted to put something back into the upland landscape. Uh, I was also conscious that having retired you know, relatively uh, recently before I started with Fix the Fells, uh, I was rapidly drifting into becoming what I would call a fair-weather fell walker. Yeah. Uh, and it's always too easy to look out the window first thing in the morning and think, oh, I'll go tomorrow, and yes. then you look out tomorrow, and I'll go tomorrow, and you yeah. never end up going. Yeah. Whereas uh, by participating in a volunteering scheme like this, it gives one a bit of uh, impetus to actually get yeah. out there and an and incentive to get out there and, and, and do things. Absolutely. Uh, and obviously the other aspect, really important aspect to it, is the camaraderie yeah. uh, within the group itself. Yeah, yeah. So I guess they're the main reasons. Yeah, that, and that, I can that, absolutely that I uh, participate. I can absolutely confirm that it's not a fair weather job. That you're out in all weathers, and uh, the the storm in Copper Mines Valley will be in my mind forever. So. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> definitely an all weather, uh, <laughs> yeah. all year round activity. Yeah. 
So I'm just with Sue Manson from Friends of the Lake District. What the Fell Care Day is all about, what's the inspiration behind it? The inspiration came from a Wallathon day that was run in Arlswater a few years ago where there was volunteers from lots of different organisations getting together and completing a huge amount of wall in one day. And we felt that this was a great idea and something that could be built on. So we uh, got together, uh, and we being friends of the Lake District, got together with um, other partner organisations. We organised, in fact this is our third Felcare Day this year, a day where lots of different volunteers from lots of different groups, individuals, partner organisations such as the Lake District National Park, the National Trust, the Environment Agency, even United Utilities, got together and undertook work to basically highlight the huge role that volunteers play in caring for the Lake District fells and also highlight the huge amount of benefits that the uplands provide for us all. So what kind of activities go on on a fell care day then? What do people get involved in? Quite a range of activities. The idea is that we have activities that people can do who are maybe not that fit or not that mobile, so it might be things like surveying. We've done surveys of red squirrels. Other jobs that we've been doing on the fell care days have included dry stone walling on uh, lowland and upland fell walls that possibly might not have been otherwise rebuilt. We've done tree planting, we're doing pond digging to create habitats. We've also made lots of bird and bat boxes. Brilliant, that's great. Well, it's been a really great day, so uh, it's really great that Friends of the Lake District um, have been arranging this. So thank you very much, and thanks for talking to me, Sue. So that's the end of another Felcare Day, and it's been great. So many people were part of it. I've really enjoyed it, and I've learnt a lot as well and had a few laughs. Um, I couldn't believe some of the stuff that other people were doing, the litter picking from the shores of Windermere, we had a group of scuba divers going down under the leadership of the famous Paul Rose and the amount of rubbish they brought up was incredible. Now, it's great that that's all up, but it's just a real tragedy that, that it's there in the first place. So, you know, the work that happens on Fell Care Days is really important and I hope that the Fell Care Days in the future are just as successful and please come along and join the next one. If you'd like to find out more information about Fell Care Days in the Lakes, you can find out on our blog. And because she's too modest to mention it, you can also find on our blog a link to Tanya's first book, From High Heels to High Hills, available now from fine bookshops everywhere. <laughs> 2012 marks the 10th anniversary of the formation of the Rainwright Society, whose aim is to keep alive the things that Alfred Rainwright promoted through his now famous guidebooks. And this year's Wainwright Memorial Lecture... Ten years to the very date of the founding of the Society, is to be given by Alan Hinks. Alan is a noted fellow walker, but he is also Britain's only mountaineer to have climbed the world's 14 highest peaks. And Alan joins me now via Skype. Alan, thanks for joining us on the podcast. First of all, tell us what it's like to be one of that elite group of people who summited those 14 peaks. Yeah, the 14 8,000 metre peaks, I do feel... I am part of a select club of uh, very few people. I'm not sure how many people there are now. When I did it, I was one of only 12, which was the same number of people that have stood on the moon. Um, and I'm still the only Brit. Uh, and I believe there's something like, you know, maybe 20 or with that people done, all 14, 8,000. So I do feel privileged. I really do. So after you've done those 14, is it an anticlimax to be walking in Britain? 
it's definitely not an anticlimax. Um, you know, I, I feel privileged to do all the highest mountains in the world. I do feel lucky to be alive as well. More and more, I'm coming to terms with the fact that most people that try and climb all the world's highest mountains don't do it, and that's because they get killed. And I know that sounds a bit dramatic, but um, philosophically, I'm coming to terms with the fact that's true. But I do love being in the British Hills, and quite often people ask me that question. You've just asked me, you know, that the British Hills must pale into insignificance after the Himalaya, and uh, and they don't, you know. I mean, I love literally being on the Wainwrights in the latest year. You know, I'm a Yorkshireman, and uh, and I love being in Cumbria. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you off with that. It, it is understandable. So, what's your favourite places in Britain? Well, I do like hill walking and climbing and potholing. I do like doing my outdoor pursuits. You know, mountain biking and you know even paddling, canoeing. I love doing it in Yorkshire. I must say, it's a great place. It all started for me on the North Yorkshire moors. Um, you know, I'm from North Allerton and I went to the Moors, started there, and then I went to the lakes and did things like Striding Edge. So for me, Northern England is the place, really. I mean, I know North Wales is fabulous. I was there last week. And of course, the Scottish Highlands as well. Fantastic place. You know, I mean, they really are just, you know, one of the best places to walk and mountain climb in the world. You know, I mean, think of the Isle of Skye, there's nothing like it. But, you know, Northern England is where I live. And it's where it all began for me. And it's it's a fabulous place to, to get out into the countryside, Northern England. You know, North Yorkshire and Cumbria, basically. Now, as a fellow Yorkshireman, it's refreshing to have someone like yourself championing the north of England as a place to walk and climb. It, it quite often feels like Scotland and Wales dominates the outdoors. And it's great to have someone promoting both sides of the, of the north of England. Oh, yeah, thanks for that. And I think you're right, um, you know, because, you know, the Scottish Islands, you know, are just something unique and massive, and particularly in winter, you know. And obviously Wales is pretty rugged as well. Uh, we, we shouldn't forget some of the other parts of, of Britain, you know, and, and England, you know, right down in Cornwall, some good Devon, some great sea cliffs to rock line on. But, you know, Northern England is uh, is local to me and it's just great. You know, I'm going round to, uh, I'm here in Tibet at the moment, you know, in Cumbria, at the opening of the new line equipment HQ. But uh, I'm going round to Wasdale in a minute to um, to meet Trail Magazine around there. And then I'm heading up to Scotland to give a talk at the Edinburgh Mountain Film Festival this weekend. And then, of course, I'm back down to uh, Northern England and doing the Wainwright talk at Reghead on Friday the 9th of November. What does it feel like to be giving the Rain White Society's memorial lecture? Yeah, it's an honour to do that. I think it's the 10th one. Um, and uh, I really do appreciate the Wainwrights more than ever. You know, when I first started hill walking and climbing, I, I, I probably underestimated the Wainwrights and didn't think much of them because I thought they were all just bimbles, you know, walks, easy walks for me as a young lad, I thought. But more and more, I've come to appreciate the Wainwrights and I am intending to do them all. Um, I don't know how many I've done. I do keep ticking off others every now and again, uh, and I've got others that I look at and I think, oh, I haven't done them yet, so I will be doing them soon. So um, I just think it's just fabulous to go out and, and intimately explore the Lake District using Wainwright's books. I wonder whether young people are put off the Wainwrights because they see this classic image of, of the elderly figure walking up the fells and think, well, they can't be much good if an old man can do them, whereas quite a lot of the Wainwrights are immensely challenging. They are. I suppose, you know, it's similar to, you know, when I was younger, I was a rock climber and into doing gnarly things in the hills. So I did, I guess I thought they were challenging enough for me, the way. But that, that, that that's not quite true. You know, they are challenging, some of them, challenging walks. And you can link a lot of them together and have a long day out in the hills. It's more the, just the pleasure of them, really, and, and, and exploring, you know, other areas and getting to know the hills intimately. 
Now, you do a lot of work with the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme. What's it like taking young people out onto the fells? Yeah, well, I, I do take quite a lot of young people out in the hills. I'm working with young people at the moment as well, under 18s. And uh, it is good to see how, how you can you know, change some of their views and see how the hills can change them and give them a different perspective on life. A lot of young people are only used to walking on pavements in towns. And I know it sounds a bit hackneyed that, but it's stereotypical, but it is true. They're not about direct education centres are getting closed by local councils and, and whatever. And so, so it's more important than ever to let people see what the hills are about. And the outdoor industries have just announced the Britain on Foot campaign ready for 2013. It's very important to be getting more people outdoors, isn't it? Yeah, I was down at Westminster in the Houses of Parliament there at the launch on Wednesday um, for this Britain on Foot campaign, which is to try and get everybody out. You don't have to do a gnarly bell walk, you know, you don't have to do a scramble. You, you could just go out and have, you know, three quarter of an hour's walk if you want. But, you know, better if you have a couple of hours, but it's just about a gentle walking. You don't have to do a gnarly, you know, Scottish ridge. So just get out there, Britain on foot, yeah. In the countryside. So, what's next for you then? You mentioned about the rain lights. Are you, are you interested in tackling the Munros? Well, I guess the Munros I'd quite like to do. It would take me a bit of time to do some of them, but the Wainwrights would be great and, you know, getting to know the lakes more. And I've done quite a lot of the Wainwrights and the outline films. I've done quite a lot of them too. So, I always try and find another one every now and again to knock off. I nearly knocked a new one off the other week uh, and I can't remember the name of it now. Slip me as I'm talking to you, the one that's near. Um, Coniston Hold Man and Swirl Howe, that's uh, an outlier there. I'm the senior moment, I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, just above Cockley Beck. And, um, but so there's lots of them to do out in the greater ranges. There's thousands of unclimbed mountains to do that are unnamed, you know, around about 6,000, 5,500 metres. There's lots of things like that to do. Just getting back to Nepal, enjoying the Nepalese hospitality as well. Thanks, Alan, for fitting us into your hectic week. And we'll look forward to the memorial lecture. Yep, 9th of November at Regged there near Penrith and uh, and hope to see you in the hills and lots of other people in the hills because I'll be out in the hills all next week as well. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, cheers, mate. Again, details of the memorial lecture and where you can get tickets, if you're quick, can be found on our blog. And before we go this month, we've just got time to talk to our good friend Richard Robes, who's got some exciting news for us. Richard, what's your news? Well, the latest exciting news that I have is the Bald Explorer has been picked up by the Community Channel in the UK and has been transmitted to the nation over the digital airwaves. That's fantastic news. So I'm really, really pleased and I have spoken to them since and they're keen to have more episodes. So you're a full-blown television star now. Well... (laughs) I don't know whether that's the case. (laughs) But, um, yes, I'm very thrilled that it is now a television programme. There's a certain amount of kudos about being on the television, even though, in many ways, you could argue that it is an outdated format because people can access the internet now. But there is still that sense of achievement, having got something on the air, particularly, I think, by other people. Other people perceive it as a a very big thing to do. And and I guess that is true, and so I'm very thrilled. So how's work on the new editions going, then? I have already got some in the pipeline, and now I'm racking my brains for more places to explore, more things to explore. I don't want to just repeat going to different places, because obviously that will become repetitive, but I'm looking at different themes to explore. 
So one of the themes is looking for Caractacus's last stand. He was um, a plucky young Briton who stood up against the Romans when they invaded in AD 43, and over the seven years he was a thorn in the side of the, the Roman invaders as they tried to overtake the jolly old British nation, and he caused them chaos and mayhem, but unfortunately, up on a hill somewhere in the Welsh marches, he came a cropper, and they defeated him, but he escaped for a while and then was captured and taken over to Rome. And nobody knows exactly the precise location of Caractacus's last stand, but I am going to find it, or try to, in one of the episodes forthcoming of The Bald Explorer. That sounds very interesting. Absolutely. So it's those sort of things that I'm quite interested in. I mean, they've, they've got to be achievable, because all this is on a, uh, an invisible budget, of course. Ah, <laughs> uh, we all know about invisible budgets. We all know about that. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, with the television transmission, doesn't come a £20,000 per episode budget or anything like that. Uh, so, <laughs> Well, if we can help out in any way, just let us know. Well, yes, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's the logistics thing, and it's also finding those stories that, uh, that is uh, definitely worth exploring. So send them in if you've, got, uh, if you've got ideas or anybody listening thinks, oh, this could be good for the Bald Explorer, then I'd be, um, I'm very open to ideas, definitely. How can people find the Bald Explorer on the community channel? Well, it's, um, it's limited on when they broadcast it, obviously, because that's, the, uh, that's the, the wonders of television, is they have a schedule, don't they? So you can find it at thecommunitychannel.org, and they have uh, a YouTube channel as well. But of course, the baldexplorer.com's website is still live, and that's where all my updates go. So you can still see the episodes there, and you can... F- and follow you on Twitter? You can follow me on Twitter, at Vobes. Richard, thank you very much. Well, that's all from another packed podcast. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes to always get the latest edition. And you can rate us on iTunes too, please, if you'll be so kind. Keep up to date with us on Twitter and Facebook too. Until next month, goodbye and happy walking. That's five pounds, please. (laughs) 